In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Um, so last time, uh, I think we we went through, partway through chapter, is it four? Uh, yes, we went through partway through chapter four. So um, I want to just kind of read briefly, cover briefly what it is that we covered last time. Um, just read over the verses again, and then God willing... Um, God willing, we will um, we we can we can continue from where we left off. So just to give kind of uh, an overview um, of what we've discussed so far, what's been kind of the primary theme that we've been discussing in the Book of Galatians? If anyone uh, remembers, what is the Book of Galatians about? Response to the teachings of the Judaizers. Yes. So St. Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. And the main purpose of what he's writing about is, is he's like writing in response to the, the, the teachings of the Judaizers. So the Judaizers was a group of Christians that used to be Jews. So they're converts from Judaism that believed that um, all Christians should be practicing the law of Moses. So essentially, they should adopt all the Jewish practices in addition to being Christian. Okay, And so they went, these Judaizers, they went to uh, Galatia and they taught this to the people, um, contrary to the teachings of St. Paul. And so St. Paul is writing to them, because he's the one who established the churches there, um, to, to tell them that this is a false doctrine. They should not um, follow the teachings of the Judaizers. And he focuses a lot on the idea of liberty. Right, the, the liberty that we have in Christ, and specifically that all of the the sacrifice that Christ made in His incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection, this sacrifice, which was for the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of the people to make us the children of God, this was sufficient for salvation. And anything else that we try to add on top of that, like requirements that we try to have salvation through some kind of works, like circumcision, for instance, which was a big um, a big issue with the Judaizers is simply um, minimizing the the sacrifice that Christ made for our on our behalf, and so it 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 and it, and it like trivializes it, right? Trivializes it. So um, so that's kind of been the main the main theme. So I think we had gotten through the first twelve verses here um, in chapter four. Um, so we're just going to read it again, and then uh, we'll continue from where we left off. Um, so he says, "Now I say that the heir." as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. He speaks about how we become children of God, and, and that's through baptism, and that as children of God, we inherit all of the promises of the kingdom, that we become co-heirs with Christ, and that and as the children of God, we are receiving from God like the promise, okay, the of, of inheritance, of salvation. So I say, now, now um, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, 
than an heir of God through Christ. So we can call God Father because we have been adopted by him as sons, because we have been reconciled and restored to him through the sacrifice of Christ and through the holy baptism that we receive. And, and that's how we become sons of God and God becomes our Father. Okay, So he's, he's, he's speaking about that this is salvation. This is what salvation is about. It's not about circumcision. It's not about these r rituals or rites that the Jews were having to do in the Old Testament. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which, which by nature are not gods. So he's saying before the people knew God, what did they do? But they worshipped idols. They served those which by nature are not gods, like people who worship the sun and the moon and the, the sea and all of the, the things in the world that people would attribute to gods. They would worship it. So before, because he's speaking here to the Galatians, so they're Gentiles. So as pagans, prior to them knowing about Christ, they were pagan, pagans and idol worshipers. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? So he's, he's essentially uh, comparing um, the laws of like following the law, like of the Old Testament, like circumcision, to idol worship. So now after you have been enlightened and illuminated and understand the mysteries and understand the, the, the freedom that is given to us in Christ and the salvation and the forgiveness that is given to us in Christ, how are you again going back to the weak and beggarly elements as though you are going back to worship idols, that you are finding that there is salvation in circumcision, in some artificial external work that you are looking to. You observe days and months and seasons and years, right? So he's saying one of the things the Judaizers were promoting is um, essentially keeping all of the, the, the holidays, the Jewish holidays, and that this was um, an essential part um, of Christianity and of salvation. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Like all the work that I have done for you in, 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 in establishing you, it's like it's been in vain because you are now essentially abandoned all of that faith and you are going to, um, to, 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 to follow what the Judaizers are teaching. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. This is where we left off from last time. He's saying, I urge you to become like me in the sense that St. Paul has freedom in Christ, that even though he used to be a Pharisee and under the law, but now he has freedom in Christ and he understands that his salvation and redemption is not through circumcision or the observance of days and so on. So he's saying, I urge you to become like me. I want you to believe as I believe and I want you to practice as I practice. And St. Paul always used himself um, kind of as an example because he was he had completely given himself to Christ. Like, and he, he says about himself that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And he would always speak to, the, to in his epistles, and he would tell the people, imitate me. Like, what you see me practicing is what is it that you should practice. And this is something very, um, and, and we've spoken about this before, but like this is something that's very difficult for someone to say. Like, it would be very difficult for one of us when we are teaching someone to just do what I do. If you want to know the right thing, just do what I do. Maybe in a certain aspects that we are experts in, like, you know, like if you're if you're training an intern in your company and you're an expert at doing this job and you're teaching this intern like how to do the job and you tell them, just do what I do. Just follow my lead. OK. And maybe in, in an aspect like that, that we are experts, 
we find it easy to say, right? But when you're talking about salvation and spirituality and holiness, righteousness, faith, for St. Paul to be able to say, just imitate me, it means that he was like the perfect role model. He was the role model. That's why we look to him. That's why he, you know, he wrote 14 epistles of the New Testament, the majority of the New Testament. So, so we look to him as an example, right? And, and so he's saying, um, I urge you to become like me. Like, follow my lead. Like, God is the one who's leading me. Christ is the one who appeared to me, and he's leading me and teaching me. Do as I, as, as I do. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Okay, so what is he referring to here? What is this when he is referring to um, uh, the trial which was in my flesh you did not despise or reject? What does that mean? Yes. No. <laughs> yeah, it's like a s it's that's not the slide I'm on. Yeah, see, it's not changing. All right, I'll answer the question. <laughs> the infirmity that St. Paul had, right? So, so we know that St. Paul, w he calls it the thorn in his side. And, and in addition to that, I mean, he, 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 he lived such a, a life of, of suffering, right? Like there was, there was like so much suffering, so many problems that he had in his ministry, in his service that he had. And so he's coming like to them with this infirmity. He's coming to them with the suffering. He's like, he's like everywhere he goes, this man is suffering, okay? And he's saying that they did not despise him for this. Like they accepted him, right? They accepted him despite of kind of his condition and his status, right? As an, as an act of love to him, they, they, um, they accepted him. So he's saying, um, I need to go to the next slide. <laughs> Sorry, Sharif is doing something. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So he goes on and he says, um, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Like the love that the Galatians had for him, right? And this is actually one of the reasons that... Um, some of the fathers speak about the infirmity that St. Paul had was a, was a problem with his vision, was like a kind of blindness. Because he's saying that you would have given your own eyes for my sake, like because you saw that I could not see um, well, so you would have given me your eyes. Like it shows the, the, the love and the discipleship that the Galatians had um, for, for St. Paul. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So he's saying like if you remember when I came to you, 
and and how I showed you love and how I established your, the, the churches and how I treated you and how you felt about me and how you treated me. Do you think that now, having all of that, that now I am coming and trying to deceive you? Because many of the Galatians were deceived by the Judaizers because Judaizers are telling them this message contrary to St. Paul. So he's, he's trying to show, like, like, do you think that I am now your enemy? Like, am I coming now to you as an enemy after all of the, the, the good relationship that we've had in the past or that I'm coming to lie to you? Like, what benefit is it of St. Paul for him to lie to them? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. And a big part of the motivation of the Judaizers, it wasn't simply that this was a group of people that believed differently than St. Paul, kind of they were just sincere but 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 mistaken no this was a group of people with an agenda like this was a group of people that wanted to manipulate they wanted to win people over to their side and this was their purpose it wasn't it wasn't just um just okay we we believe something contrary and we spoke before about how the the judaizers were representing a group of people who believed that the jews were the special chosen people of God, right? Like what made the Jews um, the people of God in the Old Testament? Well, the sign of, of their covenant with God was the sign of circumcision, right? And so the circumcision held special value to them because it, it separated them and made them unique from any other group of people in the world. What makes us to be the people of God? It's circumcision. But now you are saying, what St. Paul is saying, is that, Everyone can be the, the people of God without having circumcision and without being a Jew, right? Like, like all these changes that were happening in the world at the time that, that the, the, the people of God, which used to be like a very small select group, was, was opening it up. And, and now essentially anyone, anyone who chooses to be baptized can become the child of God. And so they were kind of holdouts and wanting the exclusivity. They wanted it to be uh, an exclusive club. They wanted it to be based on like, like some actions that only a few people have taken or will take, right? So I and they wanted a following, right? They, wanted they, they were like proclaimed themselves to be Christian leaders and went around preaching things like this, right? They were not apostles. There were no apostles among them, right? God did not choose the Judaizers to represent him. Right? These were not the apostles. God chose apostles. And to the apostles, he revealed to them the truth. And, and one of the most kind of uh, like uh, clear ways that he showed the truth was um, when we spoke about the miracle that happened with St. Peter, where he saw this vision of this blanket coming down from heaven with all these kinds of foods. And God told him, uh, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And essentially, he was telling him to eat the foods that in the Old Testament were prohibited. Right? And this was part of teaching St. Peter about the salvation of the Gentiles and that the Gentiles are um, are not unclean, right? And that he should go to them. So this message was for the apostles and the apostles would then preach it to the world. And that's exactly what St. Paul is doing. But now this other group, right, who disagrees with this, which is un who is uninformed, who are not apostles, who did not receive this revelation from God, who don't understand and are not submitting themselves to the church, they are coming and they're saying, no, we know better, right? And this is why in the church, there's a hierarchy, right? And, and God works through the hierarchy. Like God works through the Pope. God works through the bishops. God works through the Holy Synod. Because even when, as human beings, we are flawed, even when, as human beings, we make mistakes and errors, and yet the Holy Spirit can still work in the church, 
right? Despite our failings, despite our failures. And so we believe that we are being led by the Holy Spirit. The church is being led by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that we are infallible, right? But it means that we believe that the Holy Spirit is working in the church, leading us to the truth. And so how is it that the Holy Spirit was working in the early church? Well, he was working through the apostles who were then teaching these, this message to the world. Whereas these Judaizers, not wanting to submit to the authority of St. Paul, not wanting to, uh, to, to submit to this authority, they said, no, we know better than the apostle. And we are going to come and preach a message contrary to him. And maybe in their own minds, it made sense to them. And maybe they had bias that they didn't even realize they had, or maybe they did know. But in the end, they were doing something contrary to the church and pushing, pushing, pushing for it. And this is no different than today. Today, you will have groups of people who will look at something that's being done in the church or a decision that was made or something, and they will come wanting to push against it and fight against it and speak against it and come up with all kinds of reasons why it's wrong, right? But, and I'm not trying to say that there shouldn't be you know, constructive criticism. I'm, I'm not trying to say that. But at the same time, we believe that the Holy Spirit guides the church. And so in whatever direction the Holy Spirit is guiding the church, we should su submit to, to that. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always and not only when I am present with you. So being zealous is good, but only for when it is for something that is good and right. Don't be zealous for what is wrong. Don't be zealous for sin. Don't be zealous for falsehood. Don't be zealous for, for, for things that are wicked. Be zealous for the things that are good. So this zeal that the Judaizers had was a false zeal. Maybe they thought that they were trying to protect God and they were trying to do the good thing and they were, you know, but they were, they were, they were wrong. Actually, St. Paul himself, when he was Saul, he had a zeal, right? And that zeal was to kill Christians because he believed that they were, um, they were wrong, and that they were blasphemous against God. It was a zeal, but it was a zeal not according to knowledge. It was an incorrect zeal. And yet when God corrected St. Paul, right, he changed his direction and he took that zeal and he applied it towards something good. Here, these Judaizers also have a zeal to deceive and a zeal to preach against the church, against what the church um, was, was teaching. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again, until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Okay, he's saying what? I prefer to talk about something else. I prefer not this to be the subject of conversation, but I have to address this problem that, um, that has arisen. Okay, and he says what? He labors for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed. Like what he is doing is he is working so that Christ can be formed in them, so that they can have the fullness of God in them, the fullness of understanding, the fullness of faith, the fullness of spirituality, the fullness of like a relationship with God between the Galatians and, and God. This is what he is laboring for. He is like, it's like a birth, right? Just like someone when, when they're baptized, like, so they become Christian, but maybe there are many things they are still lacking. Maybe they don't have full knowledge or understanding. Maybe they are still struggling to overcome sins and bad habits and wrong ideas and, and thoughts from their old life and so on. So it, the, the process of Christ forming in a person, this is, this is a process. So what St. Paul is saying is, I am laboring for you so that Christ will be fully formed, will be fully formed in you, and that is his ministry. 
That is what his ministry is. His ministry is not just let me establish churches and make sure everybody knows what to do and then leave. Right? Because actually St. Paul did all of that. You know, that's why he had multiple missionary journeys, right? First missionary journey, he goes and he establishes churches, second missionary journey. And actually, as he was returning from the first missionary journey, he went back and visited the same churches again. And then second missionary journeys, he visited some of the same places again. So so he, he keeps following up with the people. And this is like a very important principle for teaching. It's not like a one and done. It's not like you do something once and you tell everybody once and you set it up and everything and then you're like, okay, it's going to work. No, because people fall and people get confused and people forget and people need to be reminded and people always need like encouragement right this is why like for instance in in sunday school for instance we speak about like the importance of visitation it's not just hey come to the class i'm going to teach you a lesson and then now you know right and that's that's great no there's more than that right actually the the lesson is maybe a small part of what it means to be a sunday school servant and the larger part is about the relationship with the kids and going to visit them often and, and, and establishing friendship with them and so on. Like that is what St. Paul is doing. He is going to constantly follow up with them. If he can't physically visit them, he writes them letters, right? And of course, writing letters at the time, not easy thing. And oftentimes he would write letters even from prison, that as he was from prison, his mind was thinking about the churches um, or his children, and he would want to serve them and to check up on them and see how they are doing. So he's saying, I would like to be present with you, right? I wish I could be with you, and I wish that I could change my tone. I wish that as I address you, I'm not addressing you with harshness or criticism, but I'm addressing you with kindness and love and, and, and speaking about a positive topic. Actually, um, he said the same thing to the Corinthians. He said, you know, after he rebuked them harshly in the first epistle, the Corinthians, and now he's writing the second epistle, and he's telling them why isn't he has come to visit them yet. And he said, Bill, because when I come, I want to come after all the problems are resolved. Because if I come and I find that there are problems, maybe some of the same problems that existed before, it's going to be a not very pleasant visit. It's going to be like more complaining and more rebuking and more, right? So I don't want that. Like St. Paul doesn't want that, right? Like he wants to go and he wants to enjoy himself with them. He wants to see them prospering. He, all right? he, so he doesn't like talking about this, but he has to, right? Because that is his responsibility as the apostle. Tell me. You who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. Who is he talking about now? Ishmael was the son of the bondwoman. Who is the bondwoman? Hagar, right? So he's speaking about Sarah and Hagar, and then their sons, which are Isaac and Ishmael, okay? So he's using here, he's, he's understanding and seeing an allegory and the symbolism in the story about Abraham and Sarah and, and, and Hagar and Ishmael, okay? He's seeing it as representing something. Okay, and just kind of an aside, there's kind of two major schools of, 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 of understanding scripture. Okay, there's what we call the Alexandrian school, and then there's the Antiochian school. The Alexandrian school, which is us, um, we interpret things allegorically. 
a lot of things are allegorical and symbolical. So we look back at stories and, and events and things that happen in the Old Testament, and we understand from it, um, we, f we find in it allusions and, and symbols and, and, and comparisons to things that are going to happen later in the New Testament to help us to understand them deeply, right? And this is what St. Paul is about to do, okay? Um, the Antiochian school, right, it's based on in the, like the Church of Antioch. This is more like the Eastern Orthodox, okay? Um, they tend to interpret things more literally and historically. So they look at the facts, Okay, what is it that happened, and what does it mean, and what's the significance? Primarily, okay, primarily. So, so you, you have fathers from the Antiochian school, right? They tend to interpret this way, and you have fathers from the Alexandrian school, they tend to interpret this way. I'm going to give you like two stark examples. Origen, who is an Alexandrian scholar, he is maybe one of the most allegorical out of all of like the early fathers, right? He, he allegorizes, every, everything's an allegory. He looks into everything, and there's symbolism there. Symbolism that's not obvious at all, right? That he will, he will, he will give these meditations and, and pull out this, you know, these understandings. If you read St. John Chrysostom, St. John Chrysostom, he barely has any allegory. It's all like morality and teaching and, and, and spirituality, but it's very little allegory, right? And if you pay attention when you read like different fathers, you find they have different styles, okay? So here, St. Paul was giving this example of Hagar and Sarah. And so um, Ishmael, he's referring to as the son of the flesh. Why was Ishmael the son of the flesh? Born according to the flesh. What does born according to the flesh mean? Abraham chose to, to have a son by Hagar. It wasn't like God promised him that he's going to have a son by it's not like, yeah, like, God had promised Abraham that he will have descendants like, you know, the stars in, in the sky, and Abraham interpreted it as, I'm going to have this vision through Hagar. And through Hagar, Hagar, right. So, number one, it was a human choice, right, that, that Abraham did. What else? What else about that is according to the flesh? Why is it that Abraham went to Hagar? Why, why did Sarah tell Abraham to do it? There's a lot of whispering, but I don't hear you. To have children? To have children because Hagar could, could conceive. So it was according to the flesh in the sense that it is the natural way of birth. It's according to the normal human uh, method of conception. She is a woman who is of childbearing age. He could have a child with her. It's according to the flesh. But... The free woman from the free woman, woman according to the promise because it, 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 would is, it is impossible for Sarah to have had a child, right? Like there was no way for Sarah through the normal human conception at the age that she was to have a child, okay? Because she was too old. So it was a miraculous birth of Isaac and that's why it, he, Isaac is called the son of the promise. He is not according to the flesh, Right. That's why when 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 it was revealed to Sarah and to Abraham that that she would bear a son, she laughed, you know, because it's like this is ridiculous. Like, how am I going to have from a human perspective? It was impossible for Sarah to have a son. 
So the son that came from her was according to the promise. It was the promise of God, and it was fulfilled because God said it would be so, not because it made sense rationally. But with Hagar, they said, well, you know, we don't believe that it can come from Sarah, so we're going to act on our own, and we're going to, according to logic and reason and, and rationality, we're going to have a son through Hagar, and so he is according to the flesh. Okay, so this is the example that St. Paul is giving. Which things are symbolic? So he's saying, even though at the time, you know, again, like if you, if, you, if you only look at the Old Testament and you don't have any understanding of the New Testament, okay, you don't understand the significance of Isaac. You don't understand the significance of Ishmael. You don't understand the significance of these things because at the time, Abraham didn't understand their significance. He, he, he had a very small picture of what was happening and what really the promise that God made to him was. So it's only in the New Testament that we understand what is it that all of this meant to begin with, right? Like, like the example of um, Abraham sacrificing Isaac, right? Again, at the time, what, who could understand? What understanding is there? Why would God ask you to take this son of promise and then slaughter him? What, what reason is there for that? Only in the New Testament do we understand then that this was a symbol. This is Isaac is representing Christ, and he is uh, shedding his blood for salvation. He is the promised, right? He's the promised one. So, so we understand that now. So, he, so here St. Paul is speaking about Isaac and Ishmael. He's saying, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. So why bondage? Because Hagar was a slave, right? So it says this old covenant, right, is represented by uh, the, 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 the law. Mount Sinai is what? Mount Sinai is the mountain where you receive the Ten Commandments. It is the mountain of the law. So it, the law brings into bondage because the law, all it does is it tells you what is right and wrong, but it doesn't give you any power to fulfill, right? We talked about that last time. There's no power in the law to fulfill. The purpose of the law was just to make us realize how far away we are from God's standard, how sinful we are. That was the purpose of the law. The law was not to sanctify. The law was not to redeem. The law was not to, to make us realize that we are <laughs> going to heaven. No, it was opposite. It made us realize that we are not going to heaven because we realized the standard that God gave was impossible for us to reach. So this is the bondage coming from Hagar, who was a slave. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. J Jerusalem meaning what? The Jews, right? The Jewish people are represented here but through Hagar, which is the old covenant, in bondage. They are in bondage to the law. They have no redemption, right? And, 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 and so he's saying there is no salvation in the law. There is no salvation through Hagar, right? Through, through which is Ishmael. But the, but the Jerusalem above, or like the heavenly Jerusalem, is free, which is the mother of us all. So speaking now about the new covenant, the new covenant which is not from Hagar, but through Sarah, and who, who comes from Isaac, which is the son of promise, who represents Christ, who represents the new covenant and freedom and liberty and salvation, not according to the law. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who, do, who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Okay? So, um, 
Ishmael did not enjoy the blessings of sonship. This is why that after Isaac was born, Ishmael was cast out, right? Just as the Jews, which represent Ishmael, right, they were the original, right? But when Christianity came that superseded Judaism, that, that who is it that became the sons of God? It wasn't the Jewish people. It was the Christian people. It wasn't those who were circumcised. It was those who were baptized, which, of course, can include Jews. It's not about the ethnicity. It's about the salvation according to the sacrament, according to the mystery, that God then offered sonship to the entire world, not just to a specific group of people. Just as when Isaac came, Ishmael, who was originally they were treating him as though he was the son of promise because they didn't believe that Sarah could bear a son. They treated Ishmael as the son of promise. And then when Isaac was born, Ishmael no longer, right? Exactly as in the New Testament, now as the church, we are the son of promise. We are the children of God, okay? But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. What does that mean? Yes. That the people of Ishmael persecuted the people of Isaac. Yes. Ishmael and his descendants persecute Isaac and his descendants because they are jealous. He is jealous, right? He is jealous, like you took the my place, essentially. And that's exactly what happened here. The Christians took the place of the Jews. The Jews that refused to accept the Messiah and crucified him, they lost their place. This is why the Pharisees were always arguing against the idea that they could ever lose their place. And they said, we are children of Abraham. No one can ever take our place. And then it was said to them what? That God could raise stones like sons of Abraham from these stones. Like I can make sons of Abraham from anywhere, right? Don't be so like, don't be so conceited and arrogant in saying about yourself that you are a son of Abraham because everyone who chooses Christ is a son of Abraham, right? So he who was born according to the flesh, the old covenant, the Jews persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Even so it is now. And of course we know that this also included the crucifixion of Christ. Right? They persecuted him. So he's saying this also to mean what? The Judaizers who have this mindset of the old covenant are persecuting the, the genuine Christians, the Galatians here, and they're lying to them and deceiving them and telling them that, that what, they, what they believe is, is false because they are still living with that old covenant mentality. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of free. Right? The physical sons, who are the Jews, will persecute the spiritual Christians, but the ones who are to receive the inheritance are the spiritual. Those are the ones that are going to receive the inheritance. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Cast out the old covenant. Right? And, and, and the heir is going to be the one who to, to receive all of the blessings, the promises, is Isaac, the new covenant, which is the church. Okay? So back to what I was saying about allegory, right? If St. Paul had not explicitly said all of this, 
right here in Galatians. Maybe none of us would have ever thought of this, right? Like maybe none of us, having read the story of, of Hagar and Sarah back then, reading it in the Old Testament, would have ever made this connection unless St. Paul or one of the church fathers or somebody brought it out to light and said, hey, this is what this means, right? So when we say that we have an allegorical understanding of the scripture, this is a perfect understanding. This is a perfect way. We see that this is the way that God actually inspired the writers of the, of the scripture. He inspired them to write things <coughs> that they themselves didn't understand but only would be understood much later. Only would be understood much later. You see this, for instance, a lot in like the Psalms of David, right? The Messianic Psalms. He's writing things, and you kind of think you understand what he's saying, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about something that has nothing to do with him, as though he's speaking about somebody else, right? And, and it, the person he's speaking about is Christ, which not knowing that, not knowing Christ, not knowing what the Messiah, not knowing the story of salvation, everything at the time, would be very difficult for anyone to understand what he is saying, right, and why it's being said that way. But we now, looking back at the Psalms, can see the things that are pointing to Christ in the Psalms and in other the writings in the Old Testament. So we see this is allegory, and there's allegory everywhere. So sometimes, you know, and you'll see this, like if you try to read commentaries, sometimes the commentaries of the fathers, uh, you know, you read something in the scripture that's kind of confusing, and you're like, oh, let me figure out what that means. And then you go to the commentary, and the commentary doesn't address the point that maybe you were thought was confusing, but it, it talks about some other th thing that completely was not in our mind at all that's talking about some, some allegory or something that this, like a deeper spiritual understanding, right? And that is the beautiful thing about the Alexandrian method, is it finds these, like, deep spiritual understandings kind of hidden in the Old Testament um, for us to, to understand. Okay, chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Okay, so Christ made us free how? He made us free from the requirements of the law. That in the Old Testament, in order to have forgiveness of sins, then you would have to be perfect in fulfilling the law. And no one was. No one was perfect in fulfilling the law. Christ made us free from the requirements of the law so that we could have salvation despite our failures and our weaknesses and our sins. Okay? So why then, right, would you want to go back and be entangled again with the yoke of bondage of the law that you are preaching. You're telling people that once you have been freed from the prison of the law, to willingly go back into the prison. Why, why are you doing that? Christ came to abolish that. So you don't have to, um, you don't have to, to do that. St. John Chrysostom, he says, Observe in how many ways he leads them away from the error of Judaism by showing, first, that it was the extreme folly of those who had become free instead of slaves, to desire to become slaves instead of free. Secondly, that they would be convicted of neglect and ingratitude to their benefactor in despising him who had delivered them and loving him who had enslaved them. Thirdly, by the word stand fast, he indicates their vacillation, meaning that they're going kind of back and forth between these two things. So, so number one, he says what? Those people... Um, 
It is folly because those people who have become free want to become slaves. That's the first folly. The second is that they are showing ingratitude, lack of gratitude for God and despising him for his act of mercy and salvation that he offered to us because they want to go back to the bondage of the law again. And third, he's saying, um, stand fast, meaning like don't, don't, don't go between these two things, but remain steadfast in the freedom that you have been given in Christ. Okay, Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. What does that mean? That, um, like, your faith in Christ doesn't mean anything if you feel like you have to do these things to be part of it. Yes. Your faith in Christ doesn't mean anything if like, you... it's not... It doesn't... I don't know. It's like you're basing the profit based off of your actions, right? I got circumcised and therefore I am now part of this group of people instead of just the grace of God. Yes. So if you are relying on the law of which circumcision is a part for salvation, then Christ will have profited you nothing. Because instead of believing in salvation by faith in the work of Christ, you are trying to be saved according to the law. Right? But it doesn't mean that it's... He's, he's not speaking against the idea of circumcision in itself. Like He's not saying anyone who gets circumcised will lose their salvation. He's speaking about those who place their trust in it. Those who place their trust in the law cannot be saved by the law and minimize the sacrifice of Christ. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Okay, so what does that mean? Don't cherry pick from the law. You have like, if you're gonna take from the law, take all of it, not part of it. Which would mean what? Yeah, you can't pick and choose. So if you believe that circumcision is necessary for salvation, then actually everything is. Like why would you pick just circumcision and say circumcision is what is necessary, but what about everything else? Like circumcision is not the only thing you mentioned, right? And actually St. John Chrysostom says this. He says, if the law is needed... It is so as a whole, not in a part, not in one commandment only. And if as a whole, the righteousness, which is by faith, is little by little shut out. If you keep the Sabbath, why not also be circumcised? And if circumcised, why not also offer sacrifices? And if the law is to be observed, it must be observed as a whole or not at all. Right? So, so he's, 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 the Judaizers are pointing at one specific thing, and they're, they're focusing on that so much. Right, but they're not—they're not—they're saying what's so special about circumcision compared to the rest? Why not follow everything? Right. So if you—if you—if you're gonna say that circumcision is necessary, then the whole law is necessary. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. 
right? Like how are those who attempt to be justified by the law, how are they fallen from grace? Like number one, they're abandoning the gospel, which preaches grace instead of reliance and self-righteousness. The whole message of the gospel is about what is it that God did for us to redeem us from our sins. It is not just a message of morality. It is not just a message of live this way. It is a message of salvation, to be saved from the fact that we are unable to save ourselves. We are unable to live according to the law. Also, it, it is despising grace, right? Because like, like those, who, those who feel like they can be justified by the law are despising the gift that God is giving. God is giving us this gift of grace, and it's like we are saying, God, we don't need it. We don't need this. We are, we are going to just follow the law. If I could follow the law perfectly, then why do I need the grace of God? For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So here he's taking the whole focus away from the law and being justified by the law, right? Because through the Spirit of God, we are seeking righteousness by faith, which goes to the point that um, we are being transformed by the work of God in us. We, are, we, are, we, we, we can have righteousness in us through the working of the Holy Spirit in us, which is something that in the Old Testament they did not get. Like, again, all they got was a rule book. Here are the rules, but no power or ability to follow those rules. Whereas in the New Testament, there are still things that Christ expects us to do, but he is giving us the power in order to do them. Right, he's giving us the, the 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 ability to be transformed, to, to be changed, to become Christ-like, so that we can do them. And the essence of the Christian faith is not whether we are circumcised or uncircumcised, because in the Old Testament, the idea of being a Jewish person was all tied up in following the law and tied up in the idea of being circumcised. But in the New Testament, Christianity is not about the circumcision or uncircumcision. It's about faith working through love. So it is a faith that we have in, in God, right? But it is an actionable faith. It is not just a thought or a belief, but it is a way of life. It is a way that we choose to live, okay? If you can think about, like, faith without love, right? Faith without love. It's just like acknowledgement of facts, information that I have. I believe in the Orthodox Creed. You know, I believe in the Trinity. I believe in historically um, the things that are presented in the scripture. I, from a theological perspective, I believe these things. But if it just stays at the level of a faith but without love, then it is not truly faith. It is not truly a living faith that I have. You can also think about the opposite, which is a love without faith. Like what would be a love without faith? Human natural love. Natural human love, right? Uh, Christ in Luke chapter 6, he says, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. So there is such a thing as love, right? It's a different type of love. There's a such a thing as love without faith that Christ saying even sinners love those who love them. It is the natural faith, the, the natural love. 
So it's possible to have love without faith. It's possible to have faith without uh, faith without love. But the, the, the true faith or the true Christian faith is faith and love. Faith working through love. You c- cannot be separated from each other. This is why like, it's important for us to not just consider Christianity about learning. Like, it's not just about learning. It's about learning and applying. Learning and doing. You know, like we learn how to pray and then we pray. We learn that we should serve others and then we are involved in the service. You know, we, we learn that we should forgive one another and then we actually try to forgive. That is the way that we experience the fullness of Christ. That's the way that we experience the fullness of the work of God in us because we are applying everything that we learn. It is a faith that is working through love, not a faith alone. Also, the faith, or sorry, the, the love is, again, not the human love. Meaning, it is a love that goes beyond the human love. The point that Christ was making in Luke chapter 6 when he's saying even sinners love those who love them is he's saying you need to, you know, you need to love those who hate you. Right? Love those who hate you. This is a supernatural love. This is not a worldly love. This is not a love that we find in the world. This is a love that goes beyond. This is a love that can only be attained through the work of God in us. So, so this again is faith working through love. The, the true love, the supernatural love, not, not the earthly love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Like he's telling the Galatians, you were, you were doing a good job. You were running well. You were doing, you, you, you were doing good and you were on the right track and everything was fine. Okay. Who hindered you? from obeying the truth who put a stumbling block in your path who prevented you from continuing on that path because now you have your faith has been perverted and it is not god who 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 did this to you this persuasion does not come from him who calls you god is not the one who told you to be circumcised now the church is not telling you to be circumcised now i as the apostle of god appointed to to, to be your father have are not telling you to be circumcised or that this salvation is through circumcision. So this persuasion is not coming from a godly source. It is coming from an ungodly source. It's coming from the Judaizers. A little lump leavens, sorry, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's dramatic. <laughs> a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What does that mean? Why is that? Why is that relevant here? What is that? What is leaven? Yeast. And when you put yeast in the flour or in the bread, it it will spread like throughout the whole. Lo- the whole, the whole the ho- like the the yeast will like the whole bread will be leaven. The whole bread will rise because there's leaven. There's yeast in it, right? So he's saying like even a small lie, something that starts small that infiltrates the church, that that perverts the gospel message, even in a small thing, will pervert the whole thing. You know, we, we spoke also about this last time. Like, someone could argue that this message about get circumcised is kind of trivial, right? Because it's not a sin to be circumcised. Like, if St. Paul had just left it alone, and he just said, okay, fine, whatever. 
Like if you want to get circumcised, get circumcised. But as long as you're, you know, you're getting baptized and you're living, you're following God's commandments and you're living Christian life and you're doing this. If you want to get circumcised, get circumcised. It's not my problem. Like you could have, you could have looked at it that way. And actually, if 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 all they did was they got circumcised and that was it, and everything else was fine, somebody could look at that and say, well, okay, it's it's okay, it's good. You know, we we have bigger problems. Okay, but the reason that Saint Paul is making this a big deal is because it's not just about getting circumcised. It's a direct attack on the whole purpose of the incarnation, right? The whole reasoning of the incarnation, the relevance, the significance of the incarnation is, is being attacked by this point. So it's not about the circumcision. It's about what it implies. What are you actually teaching? You're saying that the, the, the incarnation of Christ was not sufficient. And so when you come up with this small lie that begins to infiltrate, it can then spread and destroy the whole church. So he wants to take care of it. You know, like the, the, the heresy of Arius, right, who began to teach that the Logos, the Son of God, is not coessential with God, that he is a creation, right? Some people looked at that and said, okay, and like it's not to them, like, okay, th what does that change? Right? And, and, and at the time, many, many people in the church began to follow this heresy right? until it was corrected. Because St. Athanasius, who was the one kind of spearheading the, the defense against this heresy, he realized how a big deal this was, that if we said that, that Jesus Christ is not God. Like that's, a, that's a very significant. That's not a small thing to just kind of cover up. And this applies to us because we tend to, um, especially living in a pluralistic society where there's all kinds of ideas and beliefs and, you know, and variations, you know, like it's one thing to say, well, okay, you have Christianity and then you have atheism and then you have Buddhism and then you have this and this, and they're all like very distinct from one another. And it's easy to tell where one of them starts and one of them ends. But when you begin to have all these variations in Christianity and all these denominations and all these you know, sub-denominations in the denominations and every person in the church literally has a unique understanding and faith and belief about everything. Then you start getting this problem. These small things, which sometimes and oftentimes people think about it, well, what's the big deal of it? You know, like people say, what's the big deal if you believe this or you believe that? What's the big deal? Well, if you think through it, yeah, maybe there are some things it's not a big deal, but there are some things it's a very big deal that, that, appears to us to not be a big deal. And this is what St. Paul is seeing here. This circumcision idea, right? It's, it's, it's a big deal. You know, nowadays I think if somebody came and said, you have to be circumcised, people are like, whatever, okay? Um, St. Paul took it very seriously. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. He's saying, I'm confident in you, Galatians, that you will reject this false message. Um, but whoever is the one who troubles you, God will judge him. The one who is bringing this false message, God will judge. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Okay, what does this mean? Some people were telling the Galatians that St. Paul was actually preaching circumcision all along. So part of the lie that they were told is that St. Paul actually supported circumcision, and he believed that circumcision was the right thing to do. Okay, So St. Paul is defending this idea 
saying, no, I am not preaching circumcision. And if I preach circumcision, then why am I being persecuted for it? Like, if I'm preaching circumcision, why are the groups that support circumcision coming to attack me? Right? Like, that's his, that's, that's what he's saying. Right? Um, then the offense of the cross has ceased. You know, the, 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 the Judaizers are offended by the cross because essentially it abolished the requirements of the law, it abolished the requirements of circumcision, and then justification was through the cross and not by the law. Right? So the, 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 this, these people, the Judaizers, they're offended by the message of the cross because they don't want, they, they, their, their focus is on the requirements of the law more than on the redemptive work of Christ. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. So there's two interpretations for this. One group says that what he what St. Paul is saying kind of here is and I'll read what St. John Chrysostom says. He says if they will let them uh if they will let them be not only circumcised but emasculated. So he's saying if if this group of people is pushing this idea of circumcision, like let them go a step further and completely emasculate themselves. This is one interpretation of this. Another interpretation um, is uh, we read uh, another uh, um, Ambrosiaster. He says, those who had deprived the Galatians of the grace of God should themselves be cut off from the grace of God. So here, he, meaning cut, uh, even cut themselves off, meaning separate themselves from the church. Cut themselves off from the church. Like if, if you feel that the grace of God is insignificant, then you don't, you know, you, you don't even have to be like part of the church, like separate yourself from the church altogether. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So now he's speaking about what? We've been talking so much about liberty and, and being free from the requirements of the law and not following the law and so on. So lest somebody think that, that what he is trying to say is just live however you want to live, do whatever you want to do, and with no consequence, because in the end, God is going to forgive you, right? Lest this is the message that people think he is preaching, he is now going to address the idea of um, what does it mean to have liberty in Christ? Because we have been called to liberty. But do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Because we have been granted mercy, and because we have been granted forgiveness of sins, and because we have been granted to be free from these requirements of the old law, doesn't mean that now we have license to sin, okay? Or, or to live carnally. But instead, he says, we should live responsibly so as not to despise the gift of grace that we have received. And this is where we're going to start speaking more about the life of virtue. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Right. So the whole law, like the, the, the spirit of the law, what the law was trying to attain or to, te to teach is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so we as the Christians are called to fulfill this law. <coughs> love your neighbor as yourself. But not in the legalistic way, but by like through the spirit of God. And contrary to that, if we bite and devour one another, 
then we will be consumed. We will destroy one another. Circumcision does not grant us the grace of being able to love one another. Only the working of God in us can allow us to be able to achieve this. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And this is what in the Old Testament they did not have. We have the spirit of God in us through chrismation. And this spirit of God working in us can allow us to overcome the lusts of the flesh. And this is when we get into the topic of spiritual warfare. <coughs> we are not compelled to fall into sin. We are not compelled to be deceived. We have the ability to overcome. You know, we have been given the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, meaning we have the ability to conquer Satan through the power of God in us. Okay? So we should walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. So we have like um, the spirit working in us that is telling us the right way to live. That's telling us that we should love our neighbor. That's telling us we should worship God. That's telling us to stay away from evil things. But this is like one force, the spirit. There is also the corrupted flesh that is in us, the corrupted flesh that we were born with, and it is warring against the spirit. Okay, it is warring. And these are contrary to one another so that we do not do the things that we wish. The things that we wish, according to the enlightened mind and the enlightened will, is that we want to do the things of God. We want to worship God. We want to do the things of God. But there is this other force that is warring against us that keeps dragging us down again, which is why there is the spiritual battle that is going on in us. It reminds us of what St. Paul said in Romans chapter 7. He said, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. St. Paul is saying, St. Paul is saying, the things that I want to do, I find myself unable to do. And the things that I hate and the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing those things. That is the manifestation of the spiritual warfare that we all struggle with, all of us, even St. Paul, right? Identifying that struggle and understanding that this is a struggle that will last for the rest of our lives and that the only way to overcome in this struggle is through the work of God in us, this is like what we are trying to attain. This is what we are trying to struggle for. Yes. So the angels have free will just like human beings have free will. But angels are not deceived. Angels do not vacillate between this and that. Angels do not have like an internal war inside of them, but the flesh and the spirit. They are just determined to do something. Remember when we're speaking about the spirit, which spirit is in us? It's the spirit of God. It is not any spirit. So the spirit of God is a spirit of goodness, right? That wants something good. Whereas the Lucifer, for instance, who became Satan, right? He had his spirit, but he chose evil. Like he cho chose to do contrary to God. And so when he chose to do contrary to God, he was determined in it, 
There was no war about it in internally. It was a decision. I'm choosing this, and that's why he can never repent. Like That's why we don't believe in the possible repentance of Satan. Not because God would be unmerciful to forgive him if he repented. It's not that God would say, no, no, Satan, you've done too many bad things. right? It's because Satan will never choose to repent, even though he has free will, because angels choose. This is a choice. You never see an angel change his mind, right? The reason we change our mind is many, many reasons. I feel this way at this time. I feel this way at another time. I was deceived. I didn't have full knowledge, you know, whatever. We, there are many reasons as human beings why we change. Angels do not change. They just do one thing and that's it, okay? So, so the spirit of God that is working in us is fighting against the corrupted flesh. So the spirit is a source of good, fighting against the corruption in us. See what I mean? Okay, so um, so this warfare is what we are constantly talking about. Like when we read, for instance, books like The Ladder of Divine Ascent, which talks about these monks that are constantly fighting against every possible passion and every possible sin. and doing Why are they doing that? They're trying to find mastery over the flesh, through the spirit, not through their own power, through the spirit. And this is what occupies their entire life. Like, what is it that they do the enti their entire life? Their entire life is like a wrestling match against Satan, right? And that they can only win through the power of God working in them, not because they're very clever and they know what to do. They're constantly seeking God. So when we're praying, we're asking God to give us power to overcome the devil. But we are not doing that because we just we want to be proud of ourselves, because we are living a life of virtue. Because this is something, a pitfall we can fall into. We can ask ourselves, why is it that I want to be virtuous? You know, if I'm virtuous, maybe I'll get compliments. If I'm virtuous, maybe my life will, you know, be, be simpler or it'll be easier for me to, to deal with people or to do this. Ultimately, the reason we want virtue is because we want to be Christ-like, because we want to be in union with God. This is why we want virtue. Virtue is the characteristics of God. We want to be like God. We want to be in union with God. We want there to be no separation between us and God. We want to be obedient to God, and this is why we seek virtue. Not as a trophy, because sometimes we seek things as a trophy, and we just feel proud of ourselves that we've had some kind of achievement, just like we can achieve anything in life. I can achieve a certain salary. I can achieve a certain job. I can achieve a certain status in some way, and we feel proud of ourselves because we've achieved that status. That can also happen in the spiritual life. I can be proud of myself because I stopped lusting. I can be proud of myself because I stopped gossiping. That's not the reason to do it, right? That's not the reason to do it. The reason to do it is because we want to be, we want to remove every possible obstacle between us and God so we can experience God fully. This is why we struggle, right? And this is what St. Paul here is speaking about, that this is a, a constant struggle. The things that I want to do, I do not do, and the things that I hate, that I do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, right? The law tells us what is right and wrong, but it doesn't give us the power to obey. But those who are led by the Spirit, they know the commandment of God and they are able to abide in the commandment of God because it is the Spirit of God that is working in them. I'm going to stop here because this part is the famous part of the Galatians chapter 5 where he's going to start speaking about the contrasting the works of the flesh 
and the fruit of the Spirit. How is it that we are going to know if a person is being led by the flesh versus being led by the Spirit? And he lists all kinds of sins, essentially. Saying, if you want to know if someone is being led by the flesh, here are all these things that are examples to demonstrate to, a, to one if they are being led by the flesh. And then in, in verse 22, which is, th I think, the most famous verse in, in the book of Galatians where it speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, then he says, okay, well, how do we know if someone is being led by the Spirit? Okay, and this is how, so I'm not going to start this today because we're out of town, but God willing, next time we'll, we'll dive into it more. Any questions before we conclude? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for all the blessings you give us. We thank you, O God, for your kindness and mercy. And we thank you, O Lord, for granting us your spirit to work on us and for your incarnation to redeem us from our sins. We ask you, O God, to help strengthen us, to work in us, to draw closer to you, not to be sucked into the world and all of his deceptions and lusts, and not to be confused or deceived by the evil one. But to draw closer, O Lord, day by day, and to experience your love and, and, your, and your spirit working in us, to grant us virtue, to grant us mercy, to grant us a sense of peace and hope and anticipation of the coming age where we will spend eternity with you. We thank you, O Lord, for our lives and for the things that you allow us to experience. We ask, O God, that we learn from them and that we trust in you more, more, more and more each day and that you would strengthen us in our spiritual walk. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.